This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Thank you for joining this podcast today uh, between uh, myself and uh, Dr. Jay Coles from Tulane University. Um, uh, my name is John Alcorn. Uh, I am a researcher at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh who uh, has focused heavily in the last decade on influenza pneumonia and the interactions between virus and bacterial pathogens in the lung. Um, Jay, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm the John uh, Deming Chair of uh, Medicine at Tulane University, and we have a center that's focused on uh, understanding mucosal immunology, mostly in the lung, but we also do some work in the gastrointestinal uh, tract to try to compare responses at the two different uh, sites, and we're mostly focused on bacterial and fungal infections in the lung. So, I mean, they, they, the original uh, title was along the lines of lung defenses. I mean, mucosal immunity in the lung along the lines of host defense, I guess, is the, the goal. Right. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the initial... Uh, I mean, our first target was going to be the TH1, TH2 paradigm. Um, I, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, kind of how it arose. Yeah, so, you know, historically, at least like when I first started doing lung research, yeah. the current concept of T-cell immunology was TH1 or TH2, and that was based on the work by Bob Kaufman and Tim Austin at, at DNACS at the time right. in Palo Alto, where they cloned T-cells and, and found cells that either made interferon or TH1 responses, what they call TH1 responses, and then IL-4, which they call TH2. And um, and then that was subsequently followed up by um, a lot of studies using mouse genetic tools showing that um, that those responses were elicited by, you know, infections. And there was also, like, strain differences between, like, C57B6 mice and BALB-C mice, where BALB-C tended to be more TH2-prone, and they were more susceptible to intracellular infections, like with uh, Leishmaniasis. And then, right. um, and then there was subsequent studies showing that, that the type interferon pathway was really critical for intracellular pathogens like uh, Listeria and TB. Um, but what was a little bit unclear is, um, you know, the TH1 pathway wasn't necessarily implicated in autoimmunity. Um, for example, uh, in mirroring models of multiple sclerosis like EAE. And also it was clear from the HIV epidemic that not all infections uh, closely follow the TH1, TH2 paradigm, like oropharyngeal candidiasis or pneumocystis, for example. So there had to be more to the immune system. So, um, you know, IL-17 had been cloned uh, from CD4 cells, suggesting it was a effector cytokine in CD4 cells, but it was really, uh, I guess, work by Casey Weaver and B.J. Kushrush to show that there was a, a separate lineage of T cells that made IL-17, um, and those cells have been subsequently implicated in uh, autoimmune diseases like uh, the mirroring model of multiple sclerosis, but also um, oropharyngeal candidiasis. So mice and humans with IL-17 receptor uh, deficiency uh, develop a chronic mucocutaneous uh, candidiasis. So it appears they play a critical role in extracellular pathogens, particularly uh, fungi and bacteria. So uh, yeah, the, the, the translational nature of human research as well as defined mirroring models really help to you know, define these, these T cells. Uh, subsets. And of course, in addition to the TH1, TH2, TH17 cells, we, we also, uh, these cells are mo regulated by these regulatory T cells, and there are humans with uh, mutations in, uh, called IPEX syndrome that are deficient in T regulatory cells, and they develop significant um, 
autoimmunity as well as a cutaneous um, a skin inflammation associated with that syndrome. So, um, so a lot of a lot of the murine studies have been recapitulated in human immunodeficiency syndromes. And I guess subsequent to that, there's a um, uh, these are of course all PCR alpha beta bearing cells, but there are a companion set of cells uh, called innate lymphoid cells that that make similar cytokines. ILC1s make interferon gamma, ILC2s make um, alpha, I mean alpha5 and alpha13, and then um, ILC3s make alpha17 and alpha22, and they appear to play a critical role in early immune responses, but they don't have a T cell receptor, so by definition, these aren't antigen-specific uh, responses. You know, on the topic of lymphoid cells, I mean, why do you think that we missed them so long? Well, I think you know, I think they're re- relatively rare. Um, Cells and, and sometimes in a particularly in a, in a where you have where you're studying a re- immune response in an intact um, animal, sometimes these cells can be dwarfed out by the um, NK cell response or the gamma delta T cell response. Um, so a lot of the early studies used um, mice that were deficient in T cells and B cells. Uh, for example, mice with Rag mutations that um, uh, obviously saw expression of T cell cytokines like IL-17 or interferon gamma, but uh, obviously it had to be a non-T cell source because of the uh, because the background was a, essentially a T cell deficient animal, and I think that that really really aided the identification of these cells. And then, and then, you know, the uh, Warren Leonard made at NIH made a Rag2 common gamma chain double knockout, and and that mouse was really helpful in elucidating that these cells um, really require this IL-2 receptor gamma or common gamma chain receptor for development. Um, uh, both NK cells and ILCs. Um, so I, I, th- I think these genetic tools uh, facilitated the discovery, and of course they've been also found in uh, human tissues, uh, particularly work done by uh, Jenny Mossberg and, and uh, Hergen Spitz that focused a lot on the human ILCs, and they look fairly similar to, to mouse ILCs in terms of transcriptional networks. So, I mean, the role of ILC2s in asthma certainly has received a lot of attention, but what do you think of uh, their role potentially in, in host defense and immunity in the lung? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think it's still emerging how, what, what role they play. I think, you know, what's a more developed role is their role in the gastrointestinal tract, um, where they definitely provide early sources of, like, IL-17 and IL-22, and probably the best evidence for that is in models where um, pathogens attach to the epithelium, like Citrobacter. Uh, rodentium. Um, yeah, there are da- there's definitely data in the lung um, that these cells can be found in acute lung injury, um, like in acute respiratory distress syndrome, and uh, where they may play a role in, in inflammatory uh, responses. But I, but I agree. I think the um, there's de- definitely more clear evidence for ILC2s, which seem to be instructed by cues from the uh, epithelium of the lung, uh, particularly molecules like. Um, IL-33, IL-25, and TSLP, which can be induced by uh, viral infections or other uh, inflammatory stimuli in the epithelium. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of the early uh, data in viral infections would suggest that uh, that type 2 activation may play a role in resolution of inflammation as well through amphiregulin. Um, and, uh, yeah, artists. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a kind of a wave of initiating inflammation, potentially trying to resolve an offending pathogen, but it, um, how these cells participate in repair is also really, um, really critical. Right. And then, you know, it, I think the other interesting concept is whether um, 
is, is this the concept of tissue resonant memory cells and, and realizes that in mucosal sites like skin, lung, and gut that the, um, as, I guess as you get exposed to antigen, you acquire a, a T cells that um, maintain tissue resonance, i.e. they don't uh, circulate uh, as well. And, you know, work from Donna Farber's lab in New York, which suggests that those early cells in life are tend to be regulatory T cells initially, but as presumably with a, a different antigen exposures, uh, you can find Th1 and Th17 cells and whether um, how they play a role in disease, but also potentially protection from exposures, uh, reoccurring exposures to the same antigen, uh, whether they uh, can play a really um, rapid uh, role in, in in host defense. How do you think the issue we can bridge the, Yeah, go ahead. Well, which, which raises the issue is whether you, um, you know, can you ex develop vaccines right. that target, you know, tissue resident memory cells as opposed to most vaccines currently rely on, um, yeah, a, a systemic antibody responses to protect the lung. Right. And we certainly see that issue with the influenza vaccine um, when we compare uh, uh, the inactivated vaccine versus uh, the latent uh, uh, viral vaccines, the shots versus the flu mist. So, yeah, so what do you think of the mouse model for studying that, though, right? So... Uh, you know, one of the challenges we have in the mouse model is this lack of pre-immunity. Um, you know, it seems like a difficult model necessarily to study these kind of lifelong antigen acquisition events. Yeah, well, I mean, I think people have realized that the the SPF, the specific pathogen free mouse, probably is a better model of um, early, uh, like almost neonatal or infant immunity uh, because of the limited antigen exposure and, and groups like David Maspis' lab at Minnesota have have gone out to get you know, real wild-type field mice or what are called pet store mice uh, right. to try to study um, uh, more relevant models of tissue resonant cells. And, and a lot of his work is focused on the CD8 response, the cytotoxic T cell response in tissues like the skin or the lung. Um, and because these mice are obviously exposed to different viruses in the, in the field. And um, so, yeah, they may, yeah, the pulmonary community may want to try to develop some more uh, models to study complex uh, immune responses in the lung uh, using that type of uh, situation. But, you know, I, I think we're in an unprecedented time to do also human immunology, too. Um, the tools that we have available in terms of um, multidimensional flow cytometry, single cell RNA sequencing, um, you know, that, that you know, to be able to do this directly in human populations is, is um, definitely facilitated by these newer technologies. Yeah, I think that... Uh... Uh, that, that's an excellent point. That the, our ability to do human immunology right now in the lung is probably as good as it's ever been, and, and only improving. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, you know, we haven't talked a lot about, you know, a lot of what we study in the lab are, are primary infections. But you, know, you mentioned the complex complexity of multiple exposures, and so you know, toward that end, um, like we know from the 1918 influenza epidemic, that uh, secondary bacterial infection was a major complication of that, and and um, so there's a lot of groups, including your own, that are uh, looking at the, you know, what's the immunological basis of that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, it brings together the complexity of the the kind of the, the metagenomic uh, response in the lung, because um, the lung is essentially dealing with potentially viral infections, bacterial, uh, and also potentially, you know, um, fungal uh, exposures as well, and how these different pathogens interact and um, and uh, 
potentially protect the lung? Is there a protective microbiome in the lung? But also, um, can some of these infections make the lung more susceptible to secondary infection? Um, and I think it's a very um, emerging area of the field, and, and I think we'll, you know, I think that it will be an area of quite quite a bit of focus over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, in the pediatric setting, certainly polymicrobial infections are are not uncommon. Um, it's, it's not even uncommon to find two viruses in the nose or or multiple uh, viruses and bacteria combinations um, in pneumonia. Um, so I think that uh, what's interesting, I think, about the the kind of emerging viral bacterial crosstalk field is this: um, a lot of what we know about fundamental immunology of T cells um, in terms of how the type one pathway opposes the type two and how the type one might oppose type seventeen. Um, all of these pathways seem to be recapitulated in those type of phenotypes where you have a strong type 1 response to virus, but um, a muted response then um, in terms of extracellular pathogens. And um, you mentioned fungal pneumonias. I think that that's an uh, underappreciated uh, uh, secondary pathogen in that context. Um, and there's some uh, data arising from the, the Dutch group in that area um, suggesting that this is a pretty uh, substantial, severe clinical problem in adults. Yep. Um, I, yeah, I mean the model—it's it, very instructive in terms of how T cells are primed the whole way through, because most of the most of the mechanism of these crosstalks between the virus and the bacteria, in terms of the host, um, are mediated through the the dendritic cell or antigen-presenting cell, um, in, in terms of how it's able to activate uh, either innate or uh, adaptive T cells downstream. Right, right, right. Well, and then, uh, I guess you bring up the issue too: is is you know. How does aging affect these processes? And because um, you know the, the the population in the U.S. is clearly aging, and, and how um, how aging affects uh, epithelial responses, but also adaptive or innate immune responses in the lungs is also I think another area that w- that will be an important area. To yeah. What What do you understand. think of the new um, the new concept of of innate uh, memory that's emerging in terms of uh, monocyte memory to antigen? Yeah, yeah. So tra- this concept of trained immunity. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it. My hypothesis would be that it plays maybe a very important role in um, immunosuppressed patients, particularly patients like maybe undergoing chemotherapy or whatever, um, or T cell immunosuppression. It, it may confer some host resilience under those settings. Um, I don't think it's sufficient enough to. Yeah, we clearly need an adaptive immune response. I mean, patients with RAG mutations clearly need a bone marrow transplant to, to prevent uh, or some other definitive therapy to prevent uh, you know, infections. Right. But I think, um, you know, there is quite a bit of he- clinical heterogeneity and people that go on like an immunosuppressive drug, like who, who gets infection and who doesn't, and maybe um, differences in prior exposures or different uh, levels of trained immunity may be really important. Um and as we take care of more and more patients that are on immunosuppressive regimens, maybe aspects of trained immunity could be used as immunotherapy um, to boost host immunity, particularly um, as we encounter more and more antimicrobial-resistant uh, type pathogens. Right. So what do you think of the idea, the idea of um, uh, hardwiring by epigenetic type pathways? Because I think that's kind of where the field is looking um, you know, by which the the monocyte can remember what it saw, and not necessarily just the environment that it's in. No, I I think that's probably yeah. a major mechanism of trained immunity is that there's this epigenetic yeah. uh, modification, and, and these cells actually can be quite long-lived cells. I mean, macrophages can live yeah. 
uh, for quite a long time. So um, I guess the question is how would you prime that response um, therapeutically or, 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 or potentially uh, maintain it? Um, right. Yeah. From a, a, a drug development perspective. Yeah, so I guess that that segues well into kind of the next uh, area that we wanted to discuss a little bit about how we could take this. You know, we have this breadth of knowledge now in cellular immunology through you know tremendous traumatic uh, genetic tools in mice. Um, but uh, how do we actually take this then um, to the patient? Yes, yeah, so, I mean it's an interesting concept. I mean, um, you know, well we alluded to the fact that maybe we could actually develop vaccines that work through both eliciting tissue resident memory cells as well as um, mucosal antibody responses. Um, and, you know, we we have some priority in that area in terms of the, the concept of using flu mist. Um, and obviously the rotavirus vaccine uh, is given mucosally to elicit a local gastrointestinal response. So, you know, can we learn from that and, and potentially try to make essentially inhaled vaccines for pneumonia as opposed to intramuscular vaccines? Um, they would have some advantage of potentially being needleless. Um, uh, they also may have an advantage of not relying on cold chain issues, which would be important for deploying them in the developing world. Um, and then in terms of augmenting host resilience, I think you know there are um, there, you know there's been several cytokines that have been investigated and in, as immunotherapy for infectious disease. Um, there's been clinical trials of using um, recombinant interferon gamma for uh, uh, both TB as well as non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. Um, uh, it's going back as far as the 90s. Um, actually, IL-22 is in clinical trials mostly for gastrointestinal disease, uh, one called graft-versus-host disease and one for alcoholic hepatitis, but could, you know, again, could these studies that are being developed in gastrointestinal immunity, could some of them apply to lung immunity, which is, uh, yeah, like anything, it needs a preclinical evaluation, not only in, in murine models uh, where the immunology is well characterized, but potentially, you know, other larger animal models that, that may address issues of efficacy in a larger animal model, but also potentially to look for any untoward issues like, you know, any toxicological issues. Yeah, I mean, we're fully and in it, the era of uh, immunomodulation therapy, right? You can't turn the television on without a commercial. Um, that's yeah, targeting exactly. one of these pathways. I mean, that, you know, there's yeah. even as an advertisement on TV for, and it's the first anti-IL-17 drug on the market. Right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, for psoriasis. Uh, I think the, um, yeah. yeah, like anything, the clinical development of the immunotherapy for lung infections, I think, will, will require um, patient stratification strategies. Um, uh, yeah, it's unlikely that an immunotherapy would work in every patient, so but potentially you cannot potentially identify patients that would be more likely to benefit from that type of strategy, uh, some functional assay, for example, or some other um, um, clinical epidemiological stratification um, may be Im Im important. To uh, yeah, as we know, uh, like adult respiratory distress syndrome is a very heterogeneous disease um, in the ICU, and, and um, you know, I think uh, the one thing we've learned from complex diseases, particularly multigenic diseases like asthma or COPD is that we can't um, uh, lump all these pa patients in the, in the one uh, bin, and we need to think about the heterogeneity of the host. Right. And, of course, there's the, the, the issues with host-mediated pathology, which is particularly important in, in lung disease. 
Um, so it's not just a matter of balancing pathogen clearance. Um, you know, you have to uh, at least consider the the possibility of targeting just the inflammation itself um, in terms of yeah, or, or, improving or, or, outcome, yeah. right? Yeah, or, or potentially trying to augment resolution, right? Yeah, that's the idea, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I think that becomes even more accentuated when you get into the context of chronic infections, um, you know, things like CF and, and other types of COPD-type infections. Right. Yeah, CF is an interesting area because it does suggest that uh, despite correction of the – pretty good correction of the chloride channel and certain adult subjects, it does seem that some patients seem to persist with pseudomonas infection and, and – you know, is that due to structural lung disease that uh, the drugs aren't able to correct, or is there some other um, aberrant host immune response that's potentially not completely targeted by the, the CFTR correctors, potentiators that, that uh, allow uh, bacterial persistence in the airway? So I think, yeah, there's a, a lot to be learned um, um, in, in, you know, in this rapidly changing environment of, of new uh, new drugs and the CF is a good example of that. What do you think of? Do you think there's application for um, the T cell programming, um, like being used in the cancer field now, um, in the context of uh, precision medicine in the lung for uh, infection? Yeah, that's biology. a great, great question. I mean, as we know that there are pulmonary complications of of checkpoint inhibitors, um, and yeah. that's an active area of investigation. You know, who's at risk and with the what mediates that, but also is there areas where there's chronic infection um, and diseases like CF and COPD come to mind where there's actually immune exhaustion in the airway and would actually these um, drugs actually have a beneficial effect in, in those patients. And um, I, I think that's going to require, um, you know, better preclinical models. As, as we know that the CF mouse doesn't get lung disease, um, so people have resorted to making a CF ferret, a pig. Uh, there's a CF rat at the University of Alabama, and then there's also sheep with CF mutations. And all these different models get lung disease, but which one kind of models humans the best and potentially trying to model whether checkpoint blockade would actually um, make the disease worse or improve um, uh, bacterial clearance uh, you know, remains to be determined. But um, it's an Intriguing area, and I, I think you know we'll have to uh, uh, we'll have to develop uh, preclinical models to, to 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 test that hypothesis. Right, and I mean a lot of those pathways and molecules haven't been fully tested in acute settings. You know, it's generally more of a chronic or reinfection type model, um, particularly with viral infections in the lung. Right. Yeah. So uh, the you know one of the primary endpoints we all tend to use are in these inflammatory endpoints or else bacterial or viral burden or fungal burden type endpoints but what do you think of the the kind of uh maybe go back in time a little bit and look at physiology a bit in terms of uh you know how we evaluate our our interventions i mean um do you mean in terms of um like when you say physiology but, i mean yeah like uh yeah, readouts of lung function whether it's you know whether it's yeah, yeah, airway yeah compliance or it's oxygenization or, or whatever, um, you know, the kind of yeah. bottom line, did, did we actually improve the, how the lung's working? Right, right. Or even even a, even a functional outcome like a six-minute walk type test. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which is, um, you know, used a lot in the IPF clinical trials. Um, 
I mean, I, I mean, obviously, the, the goal of any of this would be to improve, um, um, yeah, lung function and the physiological function of the lung. So in the ICU, I mean, one could easily measure, you know, the PF ratio of basically how efficient is the lung transporting oxygen to the um, uh, capillary and to the arterial blood. Um, obviously, for uh, other patients with with pneumonia, for example. Um, you know how fast uh, you know you can have structured protocols of uh, weaning patients off auction. How soon does um, does performance status improve? Uh, and then also radiographic uh, imaging um, uh, res you know uh, can be used to detect resolution. Um, and many of these you know we can borrow from other clinical studies in uh, IPF or COPD uh, for some of these um, clinical out outcomes because at the end of the day these uh, you know, if this was to be an FDA uh, data that was going to go to the FDA, uh, you have to negotiate your proposed outcome with them, hopefully prior to initiating this, uh, the study right. so everybody's on the same page. Right. But, yeah, those are important um, uh, considerations in terms of um, you taking this from a preclinical model into the, the clinic. So as we move forward over the next decade, what do you think are the, the pressing questions that we really need to focus on to, to get to there, to get to these uh, immunomodulatory ther therapies that would work in um, in infection settings? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, well, having having networks of, of ICUs that, that are doing extensive phenotyping of, of, of patients trying to identify, um, um, uh, we've done a good job of identifying physiological risk, uh, chronological risk like aging. Um, but we, you know, I, I think we're a little bit underdeveloped in understanding the immunological risk of the subject. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, that's one area. The, the other area, I think, it would be uh, obviously in 2009. You know, we saw this huge H1N1 epidemic, and there was a lot of post-viral uh, uh, bacterial infections. So you could argue that, you know, are we prepared for the next? Epidemic, not in, not all in terms of handling the primary influenza infection, but the secondary complications of it. And so, you know, it, we need to think about working on standard operating procedures of how do we how do we minimize uh, risk of secondary infection. And um, you know, and it, infection control is a huge issue in the ICU. But um, beyond that, is are would there be potential opportunities for um, uh, immunotherapy in, in, in that setting, and, and that's a harder trial to conduct because you're kind of waiting on the. We don't know when the next uh, major flu right. um, epidemic will occur, but um, I know there are entities that are thinking about um, trying trying to plan for these issues, um, and I, I think it's an important area. How, how do we reduce uh, morbidity and mortality um, in addition to compounding the uh, the uh, the major the primary insult which is the the viral infection itself. Right. Yeah, and we do it we do a decent job with preventative approaches, but we we really in the pneumonia field have not done particularly well with actually interventional um, approaches that do much other than supportive care. Yeah, the, yeah. there are programs. Uh, uh, Path, for example, has a pneumococcal vaccine that they're trying to develop that directly is serotype independent because it uses whole cell wall antigens and um, I believe that clinical trial is ongoing, so we'll be interested to see if, uh, if that is effective. Um, 
I think one caveat of that study is that it's my understanding that it's still an intramuscular approach and not a mucosal uh, approach. Um, so, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, obviously, there's also interest in developing universal flu vaccines, and that's a very active area of in, in investigation and, as well. And, um, again, a lot of that will be, um, you know, do we have the right antigen and do we have the right formulation in terms of adjuvant and, and right. routes? And, and durability certainly a concern too. Well, not, and uh, uptake as well. It's it's you know the best we do in children is about fifty percent vaccination currently. So. Right. All right. Well, um, have anything else you want to? Well, yeah. I, I think it's. I mean, I, I think it's an exciting time in in lung immunology. Um, we're, we're still learning a you know a lot and how the immune system talks to the parenchymal cells um, in the lung. There's a, there's a still a lot to be discovered. Um, so I think for people that are getting into this area, um, uh, there's a lot to learn. But And also, I think, as we alluded to, there's unprecedented tools to do discovery in this area. So I, I think it's an it, it's exciting time for people that are pursuing either basic or translational or even clinical sciences in this area. Yeah, and, and that's been reflected by, uh, I think, an increasing focus of the ATS in, in terms of uh, you know more sessions at the meeting and more opportunities in this area as well. Even among the National Institutes of Health, too, I think there's a realization that um, between NIAID, for example, and Heart, Lung, and Blood is that, you know, if we're really going to try to develop better pneumonia vaccines, we have to have traditional immunologists, but also people that know a lot about lung development and lung physiology. It's really, I think that the, the, the breakthroughs over the next five, ten years will, will come from, you know, multidisciplinary people that, that really have a broad breadth in terms of uh, in different skill sets because um, uh, 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 you know these mucosal sites um, need an understanding of the immune response but also really an understanding of the physiology and um, the uh, parenchymal cells that make up the uh, make up the lung.